Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Pregnancy Parenting and Politics, the podcast where that's what we talk about. I'm the author of the book, Common Sense Pregnancy. I'm a registered nurse with more than 30 years working in women's health, 20 as a labor and delivery nurse, and I'm also the mother of quite a few grown-up kids. So that's where my information comes from. I'm also an active maternal health advocate and super passionate about improving policies in politics to make life better and more equitable for all of us, but especially for women. That's me in a nutshell. Now, last week, we featured a re-release of one of my favorite interviews with author, journalist, speaker, and maternal health advocate, Kimberly Seals-Allers, and we talked about race, bias, and birth. We also talked about her upcoming app, Earth, which provides Yelp-like reviews that help women of color to find the best healthcare. Earth, that's spelled like birth without the B for bias. Uh, It's currently available for pre-order in the Apple and Google Play app stores. I just got an email from Kimberly telling me that she's got some other exciting news. She's launching Birthright, a podcast about joy and healing in black birth. So keep your eyes open for that one. I think she has a trailer coming out on February 26th. And we're going to have Kimberly back on the podcast real soon to tell us more about it. So this week, we're going to catch up with Chris Beard, a certified nurse midwife who works in a large urban hospital, delivering babies, taking care of pregnant women, and giving us the inside scoop on what's happening in prenatal care and the delivery room. She's been on the podcast many times, and she's always got great insight and information. She's coming on today to talk about the COVID vaccine, her take on the new president and administration, and what that means for pregnancy, parenting, and politics, and what she's seeing in terms of COVID and pregnant women. We're also going to talk about whether or not pregnant women should get the vaccine or if it's still too risky. So that's what we're discussing this week. Uh, We'll just take a real quick break and then we'll get right back to chat with Chris. Okay, we're back and ready to get certified nurse midwife Chris Beard on the line. Hi, Chris. It's Jeannie. Hi, Jeannie. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. How are you? I'm good. Well, good. Well, we're recording this in February when we had a big fat snowstorm here this week. How'd you do? Well, I feel very fortunate that we never lost our power and uh, we did fine at home. I had a couple treacherous drives through the uh, storm debris and snowy streets to get to labor and delivery, but I did fine. Um, Good. So I feel very, very lucky because I know so many were without power, without water, and um, yeah, I feel grateful. How about you? How do you guys do? We lost power for a day and a half, but um, we had water. We have a gas stove, and that worked the entire time, and we have a gas water heater. So we were lucky. We were good. We were cold, but we also have a fireplace, so we huddled up. We were okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you did okay. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So we have you on the podcast all of the time, but some of my guests, this will be the first time that they've 
heard you. So we always ask the first question, who are you and what do you do? My name is Chris Beard. I am a nurse midwife in Portland, Oregon. I have been a nurse midwife for 27, going on 28 years, and I work for a large uh, healthcare organization in Portland. I'm a hospital-based midwife. I also am a mother. I have two young adult daughters, and I'm a lover of the outdoors. Yeah, yeah. You and I have so much in common. And just so our listeners know, Chris and I met a million years ago back on labor and delivery. She'd be the midwife, I'd be the RN, and we'd deliver us some babies. That's right. Yeah, we had some fun. We had some fun. We did. Yeah, yeah. Well, last time we spoke, um, I think it was back in November, and we were still waiting for Joe Biden to be inaugurated. And I know that you are as passionate about politics as I am, especially when it comes to women's health and women's lives. What, what's your feeling now that we have a new president? Well, I'm feeling incredibly relieved and optimistic, and I am very grateful to have um, my values reflected in our elected officials. And I know that um, you were very active in doing everything you could to get Joe Biden elected and Democrats all around the country, and I was the same. And I feel like all of our hard work, all of our outreach, all of our talking, um, all of our postcards, all of our phone banking, all of that stuff really made a difference uh, because the more people who vote, the better. And I feel incredibly happy about it. You know, I, um, I, it it felt almost unfamiliar to have a big win, you know? I mean, like the last four years have been so demoralizing and so disappointing. And that even though I knew Joe Biden had won the election, it didn't really sink in how good things could be until it was over, till he was in, till, you know, we got past the insurrection, we got past all of that. And then all of a sudden, it's like a complete sea change. It feels so different now. It's so boring. I love it. <laughs> you know, it, it, you're not you're not waiting for the other shoe to drop or opening up your computer to see what insult has happened overnight to a group that you care about, whether it's women or immigrants or African-Americans or uh, anyone. And so to just have things be kind of humming along without big dramatic, um, big dramatic headlines every day is just a relief. And I feel like, um, you know, there are, there were so many institutions and so many norms destroyed over the last four years. It's a lot harder to build something than it is to destroy it. So you know, I, I have, I'll be honest and say that, you know, Joe Biden was not my first choice, but I think he's a great choice and I'm delighted that he's the president and I couldn't be happier about Vice President Harris. I think that's amazing. Um, but, you know, they, they are going to fall short of our, our hopes because everyone does. We have so many right. things that we need to fix. So I'm just trying to remind myself and remind others that, you know, to, to build something and to repair something 
takes time, effort, coordination, uh, vision, and all those things. And, you know, I'm sure there will be days when we curse Joe Biden, just as we did the previous administration, but maybe for different reasons. But I feel like the train is back on the track. Yeah. And we may go fast, we may go slow, but we are moving in the right direction. Yeah. It was so frightening with the, the former guy that COVID was just building and building exponentially with no plan to fix anything. And that was getting beyond frightening. And I feel like from day one, things have changed drastically. Um, and I'm wondering if you have seen any direct changes in healthcare since the new presidency. Well, I have because, you know, prior to Joe Biden taking office, there there was no plan. There was no national plan for testing. There was no national plan for vaccinations. There was no national plan for anything. And so, you know, I think we all thought there might have been some kind of plan, but it's kind of like opening up the cupboard and thinking you're going to make dinner and there's nothing in there. So I think that's what happened to the Biden administration when they got there is they opened up the cupboard thinking, okay, what do we need to fix in this plan? And there was no plan. So just the fact that um, there's now a national, there's now a national vaccination plan. There's now a national um, mask wearing mandate on all, you know, it's encouraged for everyone, but on all federal property, including national parks, there's a mask mandate and in all federal buildings, which is incredible. It's, I mean, it should have happened last March, but I feel like there's a plan and I feel like, um, you know, every day that plan makes a difference for people. So our COVID numbers are dropping and that's par- partially a result of the plan and partially a result of now the bubble that happened or the, or the swing upward that happened after Thanksgiving and, Christmas travel is now dropping, you know, the death rates going down and the hospitalization Mm -hmm. rates going down in most places, I think in 46 out of the 50 states. Um, And there's a national vaccine distribution plan um, that's not a state by state. I mean, the governors of every state are still responsible for the plan for that state, but there is an overarching national plan for vaccine distribution. And, And I think that the plan to get a hundred million shots in a hundred million arms in the first hundred days, we're going to exceed that because now, um, although the weather may put some glitches in there, but the last I heard, they, they had done a 1.7 million shots one day last week. So that's going to put them over that goal. And, you know, I, I think, you know, this, but I was fortunate enough to be in the first wave of people being vaccinated. And I actually got my vaccine on Dr. Fauci's birthday, my first vaccine, which was awesome. Wow. Wow. And, you know, I, I am not, I am an emotional person. I'm not a crier. And I had heard all of my colleagues say, you know, I just broke down and wept when I got my vaccine. And although I didn't do that, I was extremely grateful. And I felt like, okay. And I took some deep breaths. And as the day wore on, you know, I wasn't working that day. And I just realized the heavy burden that all of us frontline healthcare workers have been bearing. And I felt this incredible sense of lightness after I got my first vaccine, like, okay, 
that means there's light at the end of the tunnel. This isn't just going to go on forever. And so, you know, being fortunate enough to receive the vaccine and I got my second dose, you know, three weeks later, and it's been more than two weeks since my second dose. So now I'm fully protected. I feel very, very grateful and grateful for the science, grateful for the science, grateful for all the work that went into pivoting and creating a plan for people to get vaccinated. You're still wearing your mask everywhere you go. I'm still wearing my mask everywhere I go. I'm still doing all the same things I did before, you know, uh, wearing scrubs to work in the clinic and in the hospital, depositing those things in the laundry, showering when I get home, you know, because I still have unvaccinated family members. And so Mm -hmm. I don't want to inadvertently bring virus home on my being. And so I'm still doing all the things. And even, you know, even among my colleagues who are vaccinated, we are still you know, social distancing, not eating in the same room, wearing masks when we're um, interacting. So, you know, nothing has changed except for the level of fear. Yeah. Which is huge. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. And, you know, I, um, I have at-risk family members and one of them should be vaccinated for her first vaccine next week. My mom who's nearing Mm -hmm. And then uh, one of my daughters is at college and one is at home. And my daughter who's at home is in a high risk group because of a pre-existing health condition. So I'm hoping that her turn will come soon and then we'll all be vaccinated here at home. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Have you, where, where are you in the, in the wave of vaccinations? I'm still quite a ways down the line. Okay. Because I'm not working directly with patient care. Got it. And I am not 80. And um, well, I do have uh, some pre-existing conditions that would put me in a higher risk group. Um, I'm not of an age yet where that group is going to be soon. So later in the spring. Just the fact that we will have uh, the opportunity to have most people in the U.S. vaccinated by the middle to the end of the summer is so huge. So huge. So huge. Yeah. And it, it means that, you know, by the fall, we will return to something that looks similar to what we had before COVID. I, I hate to yeah. say normal because I don't know what that's going to look like. I think a lot of things yeah. in the world will have changed and they'll change forever. Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to having all my friends and family fully protected against this virus. Yeah. Now, a lot of pregnant women are really eager to get their vaccinations, but a lot are really nervous because there hasn't been um, enough testing. It hasn't been around long enough. It hasn't been tested on pregnant women. What are you seeing? Women are, uh, you know, are you seeing more women who are eager to get their vaccinations or more who are nervous about it? Well, there, there are a lot of people in general, not just pregnant women, who are nervous about the vaccine. And um, while I can understand that, I also feel like, you know, we've been making vaccines now for decades. And although this is a new vaccine, it's not new technology. So I, um, I, what I'm 
what I'm seeing is, you know, we offer the flu vaccine and we offer the Tdap vaccine in pregnancy for pregnant for in pregnancy for pregnant women. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it, we offer that to pregnant women. Um, the flu vaccine, of course, to protect them to keep them from getting sick in pregnancy, and the Tdap vaccine to offer their infants some um, antibodies for the first couple of months of life prior to the baby being able to be vaccinated. And I think they can be vaccinated at eight to twelve weeks. Um, so if you get the Tdap vaccine in your late uh, third trimester, you you do develop antibodies which go to your baby. So I have noticed over the years that there are a number of people, and I don't know, I mean, I if I had to guess, I'd say 30% maybe, who don't want to receive any vaccinations. And I, and I counsel them about why we recommend these things. And then, of course, it's up to the patient. The same thing is true for the COVID vaccine. And, you know, although the WHO does not think pregnant women should be vaccinated against COVID, the CDC, ACOG, ACNM, AWAN, all of the organizations that I look to for my guidance say that pregnant women should not be denied the vaccine. So what we know about COVID is that it is a respiratory and a cardiovascular uh, disease. And those, those systems are most taxed during pregnancy. And so because you're immunocompromised when you're pregnant, you're more likely to get sick from anything. And getting sick from COVID has very serious consequences for moms. Um, and so, you know, in my mind, the risk of getting COVID far outweighs any of the known risks of the COVID vaccine. And so that's kind of how I'm presenting the, the information to my patients. And I have a lot of um, patients who are teachers, who are, who are childcare providers, who are nurses, and I would say those folks are, are very motivated to get the vaccine. And they're being offered the vaccine oftentimes through their employer. And they're coming to check with me to see, you know, what do you think before they get the vaccine? And I think that folks who aren't frontline are, are the ones who might be, have more questions about whether they want to actually get this vaccine. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I recommend it for my patients and I encourage them to get it. Um, I mean, I think you know that we, we nurses have uh, pretty strong feelings about informed consent. So mm -hmm. if the patient decides they don't want to get the vaccine, that's okay with me. But she's heard yeah. from me why I think it's a good idea. You've provided the informed part. She Correct. provides the consent part. Correct. And, yeah. you know, so far... Um, all of my folks who are frontline workers have opted to get the vaccine. And in fact, some have received it before, you know, in between our visits. And I, you know, I would wish I could high five them in the office, but I don't do any, I, I do far less high fiving and physical touching than I have done in my previous practice. But, you know, we elbow bump or whatever, do an air high five that they've received their vaccine. So, well, that, that's an interesting thing. It hadn't actually occurred to me yet that there might be less physical contact in traditional patient care because of COVID. I mean, obviously you've got your mask on and you're not hugging your patients when they walk in, but it does COVID also change like the number of exams you do? Um, or... it, it has, it doesn't change. The, well, yes and no, because we're doing a lot of our prenatal care virtually. 
So mm -hmm. people have every other visit in the office and then the alternate visits are on the phone. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're assessing fetal well-being by having them tell us, is your baby moving? Um, and we do, we do actually have a pilot program going on where we send people home with, with equipment, with a blood pressure cuff and a Doppler so they can listen to their baby at home mm -hmm. and then provide us with that data when we talk to them on the phone. So we are seeing them less frequently in the office. But for myself, um, you know, when I come into a patient room, I wash my hands, I sit down, we have our visit, the patient um, lays down on the on the exam table so that I can list, expose her, you know, lift up her shirt and listen to her baby. And I always, my whole career, have offered my hand to help people sit up when that part of the exam is over. And mm -hmm. now what I do is I offer my elbow and I say, you can grab onto my elbow and pull yourself up because I don't want to shake hands with them. Yeah. And so it has changed a, a little bit on how I physically manage myself in the exam room. And, you know, I, I'm still pretty conscious when, because our exam rooms are tiny and we allow people to bring a support person and some people have to bring their kid in a stroller and it feels kind of awkward, but I make sure that I'm sitting physically as far away from them as I can. Um, and they're all masked and, you know, they've, they've probably sanitized their hands before they came in the room as well. But, you know, just maintaining that physical distance, which is unnatural to me. I mean, my inclination is to just sit down and be fairly close so you can be eye to eye to have your discussion. But now I'm sitting farther back, like in the corner, not in the corner of the room, but, you know, I just kind of make sure I can get six feet if possible. So it is definitely a change. What about for labor and delivery nurses? I mean, a lot of the job is touching and reassuring and rubbing your back and um, vaginal exams and, you know, messing with the monitor right up close and personal physical contact. How's that changed? Well, I think um, I think it's probably changed somewhat in the in the sense that uh, I mean I I see our nurses still providing the same exceptional bedside care, but they're all more geared up. You know, we are we are encouraged slash required to wear, in addition to your mask, to wear a face shield or some kind of protective goggles. So, you know, I see nurses at the bedside with their mask and a face shield on still interacting with the patient. I think um, there probably is less back rubbing and that kind of, um, you know, comfort care being provided by the nurses. Um, but I don't, I don't fault them for that because, you know, they want, they're in the room with the patient as much as they need to be but they're not in the room more than they need to be, if that makes sense. And we yeah. do, I mean, we do a COVID test on arrival <laughs> for people who come to the hospital in spontaneous labor and we get the results back within a couple of hours. And prior to getting the results back, the patient stays in our triage area. And if they happen to test positive for COVID, we put them in a reverse flow room. And if they're negative for COVID, we put them in a regular room. So we do have, you know, all our nurses have been vaccinated we have PPE currently and we do COVID testing. So we have a couple of layers of protection, but I think mm -hmm. that there is this um, feeling of 
you don't want to be in the room if you don't need to be in the room. I mean, if the patient mm -hmm. has support and she's not in active labor and you don't need to be there, you're not just sitting there chit-chatting. Right. Um, and in our setting, we've gone to much less frequent vaginal exams, like only doing a vaginal exam if it's going to change your plan for the day or your plan for the next hour. So I'm not sure if we're doing less exams. Um, they're still fussing with the monitor because monitors are difficult. But yeah, I think there's probably a little bit less at the bedside, but still, you know, the quality of care when the care is needed is high. Good. That's good to know. Well, what else do you want listeners to know this time around, Chris? What do I want people to know? Well, I want you to know that if you are offered the COVID vaccine through your work or you're offered it through your healthcare system, um, you, of course, should do as much research as you need to or want to about the vaccine. But I would encourage you to get a vaccine if you're able to. And if you, if you after doing your own um, Q&A, if you feel like you can, um, keep wearing your mask, wash your hands. I do feel like the light is, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, we have a lot of sort of re, re, re-sculpting to do of how we are going to move through the world after we don't have these, um, the risk for COVID. You know, like I think things are going to change in terms of, I mean, I think healthcare has probably changed for the better in many ways because a lot of things that required an in-person visit now don't require an in-person visit. You can have a video visit. You can have a telephone visit. Um, and I think that other things in our world are going to change too. I mean, all these, you know, small mom and pop restaurants, if they survive the pandemic, are probably changing how they provide outdoor dining and indoor dining and takeout dining. Um, so I think we all have to be ready for the for helping to create the new, the new normal, what's going to be the next normal after, yeah. after the restrictions are up for the pandemic. And then yeah. I just wanted to touch just a little bit on the political uh, scene because, you know, I can't leave that alone. And <laughs> I mean, you may not know this about me, but until 2016, I would consider myself a non-political person. I mean, I, I was registered Democrat. I always voted Democrat. But I literally had a sign on my door that said no solicitations and no politics because mm -hmm. I just, you know, I, I put, turned in my ballot and that was it. And um, I think there is um, a need for people to understand that while we have a Democratic president right now, that is the beginning. I mean, you can't you can't stop doing your work and politics is really local. So you know, to, to, to maintain the kind of values that you want to see in the world, you have to start with your local community, like who's on the school board, who's in the PTA, who's the mayor, who's your governor, who's your senators. And just because we currently have a democratic government doesn't mean we always will. And we have to stay aware and stay alert to what's happening, even you know, you don't, you just don't want to be cruising around in your little bubble thinking everything's fine and then wake up one day in 2016 again and realize it's not. So yeah. I would encourage anybody who found their political voice, it's fine to take a break. 
we're all tired. I mean, people just really pulled it out there at the end, but you have to find a way to continue to be engaged and involved and aware of what's going on. Yeah. Because what happened in 2016 can happen again and it might happen in a prettier package so that you don't realize how bad it is until it's halfway down the road. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's, that's my sort of personal reflection after, you know, taking, taking a little breather and realizing, okay, so there's a grown up in charge and things are going back to what we would expect. And we're not seeing these, you know, horrible headlines every morning. And we're not worried that we're going to get, we're going to nuke North Korea and end up in a world war. But, you know, there are a lot of dark forces out there and, you just have to be aware so that you can, you know, do whatever's needed, whether it's, you know, registering people to vote, encouraging people to vote, um, phone banking, text banking or whatever for a good candidate. But, you know, the, the, the QAnon crowd and the um, conspiracy theory crowd is, uh, was unleashed, you know, Pandora's box was opened and I don't yeah. know that we're closing that box again. So you've got to, you personally and me personally, we've got to be alert to what's happening out there. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the QAnon crowd because while most of the people that I engage with, I would say 99% of them have nothing to do with it. They are not conspiracy theory theorists and you know, QAnon is off their radar. There's 1% that is deep in that rabbit hole. And it is, uh, it's kind of unlike the usual level of political uh, debate, because in my opinion, what I hear coming out of the mouths of people that are involved with QAnon is illogical and nonsense. And there's no way to set it straight. There's just no way to set it straight. It's also so heavily steeped in racism Mm -hmm. that I don't even know what to do with it. I disengage. I don't engage with it. And I, I don't have, as far as I know, any um, friends or family that have gone down the QAnon rabbit hole. I certainly Mm -hmm. do have, family members who probably voted for the previous president and think that what he did was great. Um, And I agree with you that it sounds like utter nonsense to a, to someone who's a thinking rational human being, but we Mm -hmm. do, I mean, we know that there's a certain percentage of our population who are susceptible to cult like situations. And I would say that, you know, QAnon is a cult and it, it, it has taken hold of a percentage of our population. And so, you know, the fact that there's a couple people in Congress who are, who are very clearly QAnon means that there's a potential to be more people in Congress who are QAnon. And so I think it's just important to be, and I don't, I don't know how you change those people. I don't know how you deprogram people from a cult, but I think that being aware of, being aware that there are those folks and being ready to counter any QAnon lies that you hear. If you hear them in your, 
in your community, in your preschool, in your church, in your grocery store to be able to say, oh, hey, wait a minute, that's not okay. Um, I think all of those actions are really important. Um, One of my friends here in Portland has a chronic lung disease and receives oxygen. So she she carries around an oxygen canister and she gets um, automatic refills. And recently she shared an experience where she um, she was uh, making an order on the phone for an oxygen tank refill to be dropped off on her porch. And the person who answered the phone, she said, well, you know, because of COVID, I'd like you to just drop it on the porch next to, you know, the dog leash um, hanging rack. And the person she was talking to said, oh, you mean the Kung flu, the Asian flu, the Hong Kong, you know, made some very racially disparaging remarks. And she spoke out and said, what are you talking about? This is a virus. And that is very disrespectful. She hung up the phone. She called the company back. She got the manager. She went as high as she needed to go. And she insisted that the manager or whoever was that person's supervisor deal with it, have a personal conversation and help that person understand that is not appropriate behavior. And so I think it was a great example of the ways and times in which, you know, just a casual conversation, you know, that was just simply, she was just making an order for a new oxygen tank, provided her an opportunity to, to go up the chain and, you know, that person is going to have a discussion with their manager and maybe there'll be other discussions. And so that's how we break it down is just yeah. conversation by conversation. I agree. Well, Chris, we've covered a lot of territory in our, in our call today. Um, let's just do one rapid fire this week. Sure. How do you feel in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Parenthood was going to be equally joyful and sad. Oh, you had to take your daughter to college, didn't you? I took my daughter to college. And although I'm not, I wasn't sad about taking her to college. Um, it, it is a little sad to be missing out on her life right now. I know. Just when they get so good. I know. Ugh. They're learning so much. They're making new friends. They're looking great. They're acting their best. I know it. We get, we miss out on the best parts. Yeah. I'm I'm missing. I, I didn't, you know, I, it's just occasionally just like here and there, you know, I just feel like, Oh, darn it. I don't know what she's doing. I don't know her friends. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know any of that stuff right now. And it's appropriate. I mean, it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be that way, but it is a little sad. I know. I know. Yeah, I'm with you, girl. I know just what that feels like. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chris, let's talk again next month, shall we? That would be great. You know, it's, it's always interesting to see how things change and what stays the same month by month with these phone calls. So true. Yeah. All right. We'll talk again soon. Okay, Jeannie. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. That's it for this week, everybody. Thanks for listening and for joining the conversation. You can learn more about me at jean at jeanfaulkner.com. You can get in touch with me by emailing at jean at jeanfaulkner.com. 
Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Pregnancy Parenting and Politics, and I'm over on Twitter at Jean Faulkner. Pregnancy Parenting and Politics is produced by Recluse Records. Talk again next week, everybody.